Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unplugged by Good Bets, where we provide the latest tips, strategies, and straightforward advice to underdog entrepreneurs and anyone who wants to leave a legacy by launching and growing a thriving social enterprise. I'm Nicole Jarbo from the Good Bets Group, and I'll be your host as we dive into the world of successful social entrepreneurship. Our episodes will be a hodgepodge. Some days we'll answer your most urgent startup questions, and others will interview founders you should know but we'll always provide practical and unfiltered advice to help you build a better venture faster. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining us on today's episode of Unplugged. I am super excited today to have Carlos Vera from Pay Our Interns on. This guy is a phenom and instead of doing a lengthy introduction, I'm gonna actually let him introduce himself. So, hey Carlos, how are you? I'm doing well, just here in DC freezing. Uh, thank you so much for having me on here. Of course. I'm super excited. And so for the humans who have not seen you um, on NPR and the Washington Post and Forbes and Camelback, who are you and what do you do? So I am a labor entrepreneur and I'm an immigrant from Colombia. And what Pay Our Interns is all about is we're the only organization in the country really focus on ensuring that everyone has access to like equitable uh, work experiences. So, you know, how can we get more paid internships in all sectors with the end goal of having institutions that reflect our own communities? So that's what Pay Our Interns is in a nutshell. Nice. So can you tell folks what was the interest in this? Like, why have you committed your life to this kind of work? For me, it really comes down to, you know, personal experience. I personally did uh, three unpaid internships in Congress, the European Parliament, and the White House. Um, and, you know, I had a struggle with not being paid. Uh, but for me, that moment where I was like, okay, I need to start this organization was when I found out that my mentee had to skip buying groceries and eating to pay for dry cleaning uh, costs for his unpaid internship. You know, at that point, I was like, okay, we need to stop this cycle. <laughs> mm. And yeah, so. All right, so let's, let's take it way back for a second. Uh, I'm really curious, how did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Have you always thought about social entrepreneurship? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I, I you know, I'm, I was born in Colombia. I grew up in uh, Southern California, West Coast. Woo-woo. <laughs> I have a, 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 a riches to rag story, which is usually, you know, the opposite of a lot of folks, but, um, you mm. know, I, I, grew up, I grew up middle class, you know, we were fine and through life circumstances ended up having our house, house foreclosed, um, on public housing and on food stamps. So, you know, I think that was very formative for me and what, you know, living in public housing and having to go through that, you know, really just you start seeing the other side of America that we don't talk about, you know, the folks that have to have two, three jobs to make ends meet. And, you know, I went to college, but to answer your question, I didn't even know social entrepreneurship was a thing. You know, I didn't know what seed funding was, what a 501c3, I didn't, I had no idea of any of those things, right? My passion growing up was either I was gonna become an admissions counselor or I was gonna become an attorney. And, you know, I, I became neither but it's always been like, you know, how can I use my voice to uh, improve communities? So, yeah. If it's okay, I'd love to talk a little bit about this uh, riches to rags story. 
Because <laughs> you're right. We talk a lot about picking people up from their bootstraps, which I'm sure we will talk about later and how that's BS. Um, but I'm curious, like, how old were you? What did that feel like? Did you, did you notice a change in lifestyle? What was that like for you? So it all started with uh, my mom. She, you know, her, her knee was hurting. This was, I think, I believe back in like 2007. And I, I believe I was like 12 years old. Her knee was hurting. And, you know, she told my father, we went to the doctors. They were like, everything's all right. A couple months later passed. There were still issues, right? She got x-rays. They called. They said, everything's great. And then one day, you know, I'm in the living room and I hear a scream and I, you know, run to my mom's bathroom and she's on the ground and her legs kind of twisted. And they took her to the hospital and they found out she had a tumor inside her femur. And that experience kind of triggered a whole different things. Her tumor was like one in a million. Um, but at that moment, we're like, well, you know, we're good, right? Because we have private insurance, you know, quote unquote, we've done it the right way, right? We're not on right. But, you know, it was over a year and a half of just surgeries, medical visits, uh, co-pays of tens of thousands of dollars for a surgery, even, you know, though we had health insurance. And then, you know, my dad had to leave his job just to take care of her, right, full time because she couldn't walk for a year. So without income and, you know, you still have bills with the house, we couldn't afford to make payment on the house. And then, you know, we had the house foreclosed and then we all moved in with my aunt um, in her public housing apartment. So to answer your question, I remember my dad sitting down with me and he was like, look, I know growing up you thought, you know, you'd have someone help pay for college. But at this point, you know, if you don't get scholarships, you're not going to school. So I guess that was kind of my opening moment. And, you know, having nine people live in a small three bedroom apartment, you know, sleeping on the ground next to the shoes. Um, you know, it's, I'm just like having flashbacks here, but yeah. So that was kind of a little bit of the experience in a short, succinct way. I mean, thank you so much for just being open to sharing that. Um, people wouldn't know this, but uh, Carlos and I have uh, had this sort of offline discussion right before this, <laughs> and <laughs> it was it was getting heated, folks. Um, I'm sure we can go back to some of those topics, but I think often, you know, we talked about this idea that people might present a um, but that often like what really drives people can be experiences like that, that they often like hide in the public space. So I really do appreciate you just talking about what that was like. So thank you. Of course. And you have been an intern at quite a few places. Yep. <laughs> so I'd be curious to hear more about that journey. Like how did the internship start? Like what made you want to get involved in um, government and advocacy and politics? So I think in its essence, politics is a process of who gets what, you know, uh, as a student, you know, when I'd leave my house and I'd get into the, the school, the school bus and, you know, I'd go to these schools that were like dilapidated and there weren't resources for me that moment, you know, like that was my reality, but it's not accidental. It all comes down to who gets the resources. Right. So in my mind, I said, you know, if I get into politics, I can help shift some of these resources, you know, to the communities that need it the most. And that's why I think I've always been passionate about politics, you know, cause some people say, Oh, well, I'm not political. I'm like, you may not be, but your landlord is. And so is your boss. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's in our best interest for our communities, especially to be engaged. So I was fortunate enough of getting almost a near full ride to go to American university. And I also want to point to that amount of privilege 
like even though you know i was on scholarship and i you know i suffered a lot while being in school not having you know that much money the mere fact that i went to a private school in dc opened up a myriad of opportunities 100% you know was able to intern in dc even though it was unpaid but because you know i could live there so i remember going i was invited to go to an event in congress i'd never been there i actually didn't even have a full suit so i, I showed up there without a tie or like the nice socks whatever but I showed up, I went to this event. It was about like youth unemployment. And then as I'm leaving, I'm walking down the hallways and I see one of my members' offices. And I was like, oh, well, I'll just stop by. And my friend said, I don't think you can do that. I'm like, well, he's my member. So I guess I had this courageousness about me and I just walked in. I started talking to the front desk person and there was someone else, found out they were the chief of staff. I asked, how can I get involved? And you know, I went to Career Center, created a resume and they offered me the internship. But because it was unpaid, what ended up happening was I would, you know, I worked about 25 hours a week and turned about 35. And then I was taking six classes as a 17 year old. And the most, I guess, visible memories of, you know, I remember was, you know, walking down the hallways of the Capitol and realizing that no one looked like me um, except the custodian. And I think that was kind of my first moment where I really realized this, um, difference between how our communities look like and what our leaders look like here in Congress? Oh, I mean, this idea that when you look around the halls of where you are, no one looks like you except someone who's doing significantly different work. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just really tough. And so I want to kind of want to pivot a little bit, but stay on, stay on that track around representation. Yeah. So how do you view the importance of representation. Obviously, PAIR Interns does a lot of work to promote diversity within congressional internships and, and other places. But why is that fact so important? I guess the best example I can give is of one of my mentors who, you know, grew up working class immigrants. She was part of Head Start as a child. And it was very formative. It really helped her. And she was one of the lucky ones that was able to intern on the Hill, got a job and ended up working, you know, there in policy. And, you know, she had the opportunity of being in one of those tables where, you know, they kind of divvy up who gets what right. And one of these members who shall remain nameless, try to cut the budget of Head Start. And she was able to intercede and block that. And, you know, that's just one example of the importance of having, you know, people that have actually been through the programs, right? Because the problem that we have is the power makers, right? The decision makers rarely have ever been through these programs. So for them, it's just numbers, right? But they forget that there are lives, there are people behind these numbers. And that's why it's, you know, I'm a very big proponent of reflective democracy. Oh, I love that story. <laughs> it just like gave me chills. Um, Cause you're, you know, I feel like con I admittedly am not political at all. Um, I think that's changed now <laughs> in uh, the past like five years or so. But mm -hmm. I grew up not knowing anything about politics. Just what they teach you, I think, in fifth grade, maybe. But um, <laughs> I knew there was a House and a Senate and the White House. And that was basically it. And I didn't really understand what those places did. So can you help us just zoom into what actually is Congress supposed to do? What do they do? 
And why does that story you just told us like really, really matter? Of course you alluded to it, but if you have more, you yeah. have more elaboration on like the importance of that, I'd love to hear that too. So Congress formulates a $2 trillion budget for the federal government, right? So they're deciding how much money is being given to HBCUs, community hospitals, um, programs for reproductive health care, for, uh, you know, sex trafficking. I mean, they're funding everything, right? Education, um, Upward Bound, the Pell Grant to go to college. I mean, they're the ones that are really deciding how much is being spent in these programs that impact our lives. And you could say the same thing about the state capital in California and so on and so forth. So that's what they're supposed to do. Do they always do that to the best of their abilities? No. Uh, but yeah, so $2 trillion budget every year. Right. And your thesis is that with more reflective democracy, we can make better choices for the people, right? Absolutely. And so tell us a little bit about like, what does pay our interns actually do? And I'm really excited about this. Can you also tell us about the impact you've had? Because that's pretty impressive. So um, what Parenters really is about is how can we push organizations to pay their own interns? And then once an organization starts paying interns, how can we connect communities that, you know, tr traditionally have not had these internships have them, right? So for example, in Congress, what we started is the first thing you need is you need to have the data, right? You need to know the landscape. So we collected the data. We released a report called Experience Doesn't Pay the Bills, listed why Congress should pay their interns, kept on pushing them. And then the, you know, they passed $14 million in 2018 for their intern fund. And that was the first time in history. And just uh, two weeks ago, we got them to then do an additional year for $17 million. So in total, in under two years, they've invested $31 million in their own interns. So, Woo! Yeah. <laughs> you say that so nonchalantly. <laughs> like, oh, we did this massive thing. It was cool. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I've said congratulations many times, but congratulations again, because there's, um, there, there's not enough congratulations and gratitude to give to that. Um, how do you do that? How do you guys get people to pay attention? And actually, before that, I'd be curious, like, what was the state of that before you guys yeah. released the report? So I quit my job to start, you know, pay our interns. And I was actually a server full time, six days a week. And, you know, I would go to the Hill from like nine in the morning to 5 p.m. And what we realized was there was no data on who paid and who didn't. And, you know, for anyone that applies for funding, you need to have numbers, right? Without, you know, data, you're not going to get very far. So my team and I actually went to all 545 offices and collected that information on our own. And then we crunched the numbers and we found out that like 90% of uh, the house was not paying interns. And in the Senate, uh, it was about like 50% for Republicans and 25% for Democrats. So uh, pretty abysmal numbers. Ugh, well, like, that makes me so annoyed. Um, and then, and tell us now, have the numbers changed since you guys started? 100%. Obviously, okay, great. What are they now? So in the Senate, it's above 90%. And in the House, it's above 70%. Wow. <laughs> like all of that, and wait, how many years? This has only been a couple of years. Yeah, we launched the report uh, June 
2017. Mm-hmm. It passed all the funding September 2018. And now we're in, yeah, January 2020. So, so did you, in, yeah. in trying to do that work, did you guys actually encounter resistance directly about paying interns from folks? 100%. Like, I feel like I'm making this <laughs> look like it's a, a walk in the park. It was I know. <laughs> like, this is so easy, y'all. Like... <laughs> So what did you, like, what was that resistance that you experienced when you put that through? I think there's, there's two camps here. One is the, this sounds like world peace. You know, it's nice, laudable, but it's not going to go anywhere. Right. I mean, cause let's be honest, Congress can't agree on like naming a park. And then the second, we also face a lot of, well, I did unpaid internship, you know, like you have to pay your dues. So those are the two kind of groups we faced. And in fact, when we first, like the first day we started and we emailed offices of like the 30 offices we sent out emails to only two responded Mm. so very few actually did frankly it wasn't until we collected the data right like so we went to an office and we would tell them like hey you know these are these are the data you know how much it costs to intern la 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 la, right and the staffer you know they're acting like they're taking notes but they probably aren't and then you say and we know that you're not paying and we're actually talking to you know la times and we're going to release a report in a month. You can either be listed as pain or not. It's up to you. And at that moment, you've gotten their attention. So really leveraging kind of naming and shaming them. Shame. <laughs> shame. That, that's the best tool. Yeah. And um, it's a domino cool. effect. You get a couple that become your champion, and then it's easier. Like right. you know, you Momentum. So do you, how long do you think it'll take till it's 100% in both the Senate and the House in terms of paying interns? Do you think that that's achievable? By December. Oh, <laughs> what are you guys going to do then? I know that you have a focus on making sure like recruiting and support efforts are going to more diverse communities, but how is the work going to change once you guys hit that milestone? So, and, and I think... It is important to note the work is far from over because, you know, we have to move the conversation beyond just saying is an office pain or not. You know, what we had was some interns reaching out being like, yes, I'm getting paid, but it's like $600 for three months in DC when rent here can cost over a thousand dollars. Right. So for us, like, yes, there has to be a baseline where we, we need to ensure that every office is using the funds. Right because each office gets an allotted fund and you can only use it for interns. But the long-term that will take much more time and much more resources is really examining, are you like, you know, you represent two community colleges an HBCU and a tribal college. Are you reaching out to them? Because Mm. the reality is most of them are not interning right now in Congress. And that is actually the problem we face. You know, I spoke to a chief of staff just a week and a half ago and they said, Hey, you know, Yes, like we're paying and, you know, that's nice, but like we're still getting the same Ivy League kids. Mm. Why is it, I know we keep talking about this because there's like this moral imperative that like we need more diversity in these spaces, right? Because like these are folks making laws. These are folks determining, you know, the future of our country. Um, but I just want to keep talking about like privilege yeah and what you know really happens when every single person comes from privilege who's supporting you know our lawmakers Uh, i don't know if there's actually more to say about that 
<laughs> but I think we need to have more conversations about how important social capital is. Um, and so I'd be curious, you know, you had um, time interning at the White House as a White House fellow, right? I was not a White House fellow. I was just an intern, yeah. Oh, you're just an intern at the White House. Okay. Tell, like, tell us a little bit about that in terms of what it felt like to seemingly have that sort of proximity to, you know, um, lawmaking power. And, and who were the folks that you maybe most connected with when you were there? When I found out that I got the White House internship, I mean, for, you know, for my family and I, like, it was kind of like, okay, I've made it, right? It was a big deal. But it was also like, um, I feel like one of the toughest experiences I had for good and bad reasons. But one of them, just a simple logistical one was, unlike the Hill where some days you wear suits, some you don't, you know, professional clothing, you had to wear business style every day that you were there. Mm. And the problem was I only had one or two suits at that time. So my family, you know, all pitched in money, you know, and I went to JCPenney and I bought myself another suit, but it wasn't enough for all the days. And I remember, you know, someone coming up to me being like, hey, do you have other clothing? Uh, and, you know, obviously like <laughs> it's humiliating, uh, but it was, I think really there where I, it just really opened up to the, the immense wealth that, you know, it doesn't matter what party is in there you have the wealthiest people there interning uh, because their parents are senators or lobbyists or so on and so forth. Um, and they all go, like I said, to the same preparatory schools. So I feel like that really experience was kind of like the solidifying factor of being like, okay, there's a problem here. So. Yeah. And just to, I mean, give a little bit more evidence of that, not inside the same space, but I think about living here in the Bay area and you know, that's, startup land basically and a lot of folks who are able to work at the earliest stages of a startup are folks who can take a pay cut right and they can you know forgo that income and then just get equity if that organization blows up if that startup does really well now they're getting large chunks of money um, you know, equity ownership. And it's this like cycle of like the rich getting richer that I just don't think we talk about enough. Or I think that we may just think it's normal, right? And that we should just get used to it. That having privilege should allow you to have more privilege. Um, and, and that's how it goes. And so, I mean, that's one of the reasons I've always been obsessed with your guys' work because there's a tangible way to disrupt that cycle in government. And I think that you all are, are trying to do that. So kudos for that and definitely appreciate it. I wanted to just add on to something what you said. I was at a very, you know, bougie uh, conference. <laughs> <And> <laughs> of course, via scholarship. But um, I met someone who was younger than me. And, you know, I'm, I'm 25 right now. I think that person was like 23. And they were, it was, you know, a white guy. It was basically an entrepreneur extraordinaire, you know, had all these ventures and this and this and that. And, you know, I was generally fascinated, right? Like I was like, wow, like mad respect to you. Like, you know, you're such a young age and you've done all these amazing things, right? And I started talking to him and, you know, just, I wanted to know more, like, right? Like you're always trying to be like, well, what, what's that secret um, sauce, right? Seeking so ingredient. Right. And he, you know, he started talking about his childhood and he's like, oh, well, you know, when I was 12, I would, um, I would ski in Europe. 
And for me at that moment, like that was like a trigger. Like I was like, hmm. Right. <laughs> I shared Noah's help. My friends and I were not, I've actually never skied. I should probably try it. But um, we're skiing, you know, very few people ski when they're 12 in Europe, right? And I actually Googled him and his parents and I, and then I found out that his parents were worth like over a hundred million dollars. Um, so I was like, okay, well, this makes sense. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's really insane. Again, I think that there are probably, and well, we see in tech, right? Like there's diversity programs, there's other things like that, but we do have to acknowledge that like this kind of social capital is deeply entrenched in the system, right? If he can go on vacation in Europe, that's probably tens of thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars. If he's doing that every single year, if he's accustomed to being around certain types of people um, and the certain types of people he needs to impress come from the same background, it makes that so much easier. And earlier you and I were talking about what it's like to fundraise. And so I actually want to give people tactical things if they're actually listening for that. So um, tell us a little bit about your fundraising journey. What have been some of the highlights and what have been some of the challenges that you've faced? So I think you're, you know, you're kind of taught that you have to, I guess, get seed funding for like a year, right? You go to some investors, you tell them your dream, your business model, you get the money, then you do it. I did it the other way around. <laughs> you know, I saw an issue I had mentioned about like my mentee and I actually just quit my job and I started this organization and I started it with like a one or $2,000 of my own money. AKA like my last paycheck. <laughs> right. Uh, so not, did not know much about funding. Uh, I didn't know about seed funding, any of these terms, right? And what I actually did was the first year, like 2017, you know, we only raised like, I don't know, $16,000, which really, you know, for a lot of folks, like it's nothing. Um, but like I said, like, I just, I couldn't ask my parents. And I remember a year and a half ago, I think reading a book or hearing a talk, someone was like, oh, well, you know, I got $40,000 from friends or family, right? And I was like, okay, well, I should try the same thing. And I remember going home and I was like, okay, well, I just saw this talk and they're talking about, they got all this money from their family. I was like, let's do a fundraiser at the house. And my dad was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> like it just doesn't right. work. You know, we're philanthropic and generous, but just in different ways. Um, so, you know, really like we were very much like, you know, all volunteering. Like I said, I was a server. Guillermo, the co-founder, was working at FEMA, actually in the evenings during Hurricane Maria. And I remember talking to the first foundation that they had reached out. They were interested in our work. And then when they saw their, our budget, they were like, oh, no, you're too small. So that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. And I remember being connected, actually, to a foundation in San Francisco that is, quote, unquote, progressive, because we needed a fiscal sponsor. You know, we wanted to fundraise and keep in mind, we were not asking them to give us money. We were just asking them to, you know, be under their 5 c umbrella so that we could fundraise. And, you know, I sent them all the materials and they took them a month, whatever. And then we got on the call and they're like, this is so amazing. You know, like you're the only organization doing this. And then they're like, we usually require an organization to have a minimum of $250,000 in the bank for us to consider them. <laughs> And, you know, I was like, it's kind of like a chicken and egg. 
like I know I can fundraise some money, but I need to be a 501c3, right? And right. Like, well, you know, we've always done it this way. And I'm like, well, that's a problem. I was actually just very direct at that point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I, I understand why, you know, you have parameters and you have standards, but what I've seen is those closest to the pain, those on the front lines, right? Those that are best at doing this work are the least likely to be funded um, for the work. And that is something that I've realized. It wasn't until 2018 after like, you know, banging my head against the wall that I, you know, I realized I was like, okay, you know what? I can complain about philanthropy all day long, or I can start learning the rules of engagement and surround myself with people that know how the game works. And, you know, that's what I did. And I had, you know, someone, um, a champion at the Open Society Foundation. And, you know, after much pushing, uh, they gave us our first grant in October, 2018. And I think that's when things changed. They gave us a $25,000 grant. And then with that, we hired a consultant to help us write grants, long story short. And then um, we ended up getting Equin Green Fellowship and Camelback. So that's kind of like a, our, some of our experience with philanthropy. How did it feel to get that first 25K check? We were over the moon, you know, cause you know, some months we would get paid, some we would not. So it, it really was amazing, but it happened to be because someone there had fought for us, you know, and it kind of goes back to the right. whole question about networks and who, you know, so. So. All right, I have lots of questions, but I'm really curious about this one. Pair Interns has been around for a few years, not that long. Yeah, three. But do you, did you ever think it was going to have the impact that it's already had, like this soon? Absolutely not. I did not think we'd get Congress to pass something until like 2020, 2021. So. Does that change the way that you think about the future of the work? Right, like that you perhaps could do and accomplish things faster than you've ever dreamed about. Does that, does that 100%. like percent anything? But, yeah. I, but I think there's a flip side too. And this is a good problem, but because of our success, it's created all this work. And we just don't have the capacity for it right now. So, you know, last year, our small team was doing the work of like 10, 15 people, just like three, four of us, right? So it's, it's a flip side. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to... Uh, to answer your question, yes. Um, you know, like, given what we've done, I'm confident that we can do so much more that we can have a national impact beyond just what we did in Congress. The question now is just getting the funding for it. How much funding do you guys need? So to, you know, to do what we want to do, we're talking about a budget of like five hundred to $600,000. Mm-hmm. Does that number feel big to you? It's gotten to a point, I think, now that it does not because I've seen what's out there, right? Like I'm on Forbes 30 to 30. Um, but for some people, when I ask them, it does seem big. It's, I don't want to like contradict myself. It's, how do I say this? I, I feel like as an entrepreneur of color, you know, I have... I started off with really big dreams, goals, right? And then I was told I need to be more realistic and need to narrow it more, right? So I narrowed it. 
And then I would say, oh, that's actually not inspiring. You need to think bigger, right? So I'm always getting like whiplash. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so no, I, I don't think that's a massive number. Um, I don't. I would, you know, within the next two, three years, I would like to get to a budget of a million dollars. Like I said, it really depends, like, you know, what can we do? Like with five or $6,000, we can start launching some state initiatives and have a bigger team. But if you're talking about a million, you're talking about having impact in all 50 states. So it just depends. Got it. And I mean, I asked that question because I really wanted to understand how your thinking has changed as you've gotten more access to other entrepreneurs. So, right, Echoing Green, like Camelback, um, Forbes 30 Under 30, you're watching what others are doing. Some are peers, some are not peers, right? But I'm curious to see how that changes your mindset. I guess the way it changes my mindset is, you know, one of the biggest lessons I've learned is I've had to push myself in terms of how I view money, you know, because my family doesn't have a lot of money, neither do I like I've always, how do I say this? It's, it's been like a juxtaposition where when it comes to strategy, I'm a big proponent thinker, right? I mean, that's why I came up with this organization. But when it came to money, I would go to organizations and ask them, you know, for $500,000. And thankfully, you know, I was able to connect with someone that had raised millions. And they're like, look, while you're asking for a $500, $1,000, maybe $2,000 check, other folks that are doing half of what you're doing are asking for $50,000, $100,000, and they're getting it. So, you know, really pushing me to think bigger and give, to give a specific example. I remember at the Ford summit this October, I was like, you know, what? let me do a quiz. Let me just ask people that made the list. Like, you know, well, how did they get into the list? And I talked to this guy who was white and I said, well, how did you get your seed funding? And he had a for-profit venture. He's like, oh, well, you know, I just came up with this idea and we like pitched to these three investors and they just gave us $150,000. Meanwhile, it took me over two years to raise that amount of money that took him in a day without really much of a plan. So it just kind of shows the difference. <laughs> Not much of a plan. Yeah. Typical, so. mediocre. Yeah. I mean, I love, you know this, I love talking about fundraising and it's not ever, actually ever in a positive way, <laughs> but I just, I just wonder all the time, like what are better solutions for, for funding, right? And building more sustainable organizations. If we can't trust some of these, you know, longer standing institutions to support new entrepreneurs, how do we get around that? And you probably don't have an answer, right? But I'd be curious for you, what's the ideal way pay our interns is funded? So you're right, right? Like we can't just count on foundations. And what we're personally doing right now is we're shifting more towards medium and high dollar donors that could give as much as a foundation with much less paperwork and, you know, all these proposals, but also family foundations. Um, those are some in trust. Those are some that we're starting to look at um, that probably are better aligned. Um, and we're also starting to expand our like small giving donations. You know, mm -hmm. like some of your friends, maybe they can only give you know, five, $10 a month. But if you get a couple of dozens, hundreds, that adds up quickly. So we're starting to, you know, I think last year it was good for the moment, but it was, we were just purely fundraising for filling, you know, foundations and it's a double-edged sword. So we're starting to um, expand beyond that. So. Mm. I mean, I think it's, I think that's really smart. I think continuing to like diversify that yes. um, is the only way you can kind of stay alive. 
Um, all right. So before we wrap things up, I'm curious, what advice do you have for folks who are thinking about starting a new initiative? Um, maybe they're in it right now and things aren't going well. What would you tell folks who are in the beginning? The best advice I can give to folks. The first one is find a community, um, like, you know, folks that will love you, that will care for you because this is a long journey. And, you know, even within a day, there are some days I'm like, I feel amazing. Then I feel horrible. I feel amazing. One day you get a grant, one day you don't like, it's a lot of instability. So you have to find ways to ground yourself and really to take life day by day. Um, I recommend a book. I'm actually reading it as we speak. It's called The Messy Middle. And it really talks about how many times we hear about ventures like Apple or whatever you hear about. They start in a garage and now they're a multi-billion dollar um, organization. Right. They don't talk about the middle part. And that's kind of where I think most organizations end, right? The three to five year mark. So like, how can you survive that? And I, I think a lot of it is just patience and don't internalize failure right? Like we're talking about systemic racism and larger forces beyond you, right? So like if you get rejected from a funder um, and, you know, what I started feeling was like, I was like, well, there, there must be something wrong with me. And the, quite, the fact is, no, it's not. <laughs> it's systemic, right? So like, how do you detach yourself from that? Because you can really start creating, um, you know, internal problems in terms of like imposter syndrome and so on and so forth. That's really good advice. And that book is, it's Scott Belsky's book, right? Yes. Okay, cool. We will put a link to the show notes in it. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And the last question is, uh, where can people find out more about you or the work of Pay Our Interns? So my Twitter handle is carlosangelis25. And our website is payourinterns.org. We have events. You can share your story. We're big on stories, right? We're trying to destigmatize. Um, you know, the suffering of unpaid internships. And you can also donate online. So nice. And I also will say that Carlos is probably one of the most generous people in terms of sharing his own social capital. So I'm volunteering him or volunteering him <laughs> that if any of you have questions about how to do this work and navigate this space as a marginalized identity. He's definitely someone who can give you great advice and support in that. Yes. Um, find him and stalk him. Please reach out. You know, I'm a big proponent that we can all lift each other up. It's not a zero sum game. You know, just because you're living doesn't mean I'm suffering. Um, so definitely I'm always here to help out. Awesome. And thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it, Nicole. Yeah, thank you. You're the best. And we'll have to do part two again sometime. Right. <laughs> of course. You have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have a question you'd like us to answer? or an idea for a show, email us at hello at goodbets.co with unplugged in the subject line. If you want to learn more about GoodBets Group and our work, then visit us at goodbets.co. That's G-O-O-D-B-E-T-S dot C-O. Till next time.